Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, we have a special two-part episode with actors Melanie Linsky and Vicky Creeps. As you may remember, Linsky came on this podcast back in the summer of 2016. She stars in a new show called Yellow Jackets, premiering tonight on Showtime. We catch up with her in a little bit, but first, Vicky Creeps. You likely saw her opposite of Daniel Day-Lewis in Phantom Thread back in 2017. She played Alma a waitress-turned-muse for Reynolds Woodcock, the exacting fashion designer played by Day-Lewis. To her credit, Vicky was every bit as compelling as her seasoned counterparts, delivering a staggering performance that catapulted her into American cinema. But initially, she was reluctant to embrace this new career. After Phantom Thread was released, she went back to Berlin and her two children. That's where we enter the story. It was while she was home that she received an email from French filmmaker Mia Hansen-Love. The email contained a script for a film called Bergman Island. Creeps, who became enamored with Mia's work around the release of Father of My Children, didn't hesitate. She said recently, When I read the script, I knew why she sent it to me. 
I could tell that there was a connection between me and Mia's universe in a way that we share a certain sense of sensitivity to life. And from that sensitivity, Bergman Island was born. The picture is centered around a filmmaker couple, played by Creeps and actor Tim Roth, who visit the Swedish island of Faro, where legendary director Ingmar Bergman once worked and lived. The visit, part writer's retreat, part vacation, is designed to inspire. Of course, inspiration is always easier to talk about than to find. Here's a clip from a scene early in the film, Bergman Island, starring Vicky Creeps and Tim Roth. Hey, I think I'll be sitting up here. We can wave at each other. Wow. Don't you think it's too nice, too... Too what? Beautiful. All this calm and perfection. I find it oppressive. Ah, soothing. Yeah, but I didn't realize, you know, writing here, how can I not feel like a loser? I'm even afraid to sit at a desk. Right outside, then. A lot of people come here to work. Students, writers, designers. No one's expecting persona. Yeah, well, thank God for that. As the summer unfolds, the lines between fantasy and reality begin to blur. Creeps, playing the character of Chris, does a remarkable job anchoring the movie. She has this quiet confidence about her. Even when the character may not know where she's going, you can't help but want to go along with her. When we sat down... Creeps was about to start shooting a new film in which she plays a U.S. Border Patrol agent. That alone speaks to her versatility. Whether it's in Bergman Island, or recently in Old by M. Night Shyamalan, or The Survivor by Barry Levinson, Creeps can shapeshift into all kinds of characters. We get into that in this conversation. We also discuss how life and art dovetailed in the making of Bergman Island, and why growing up with hippie parents in Luxembourg prepared her for the chaos of being an actor. This is Vicky Creeps. Vicky Creeps. Yes. You start a new movie tomorrow. Where are you at the day before starting a new film? Always before I start a new film, I'm, I'm pretty lost. And I, I feel like don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why I'm here. And in this particular case, for the first time, I feel very uneasy and even scared. I'm scared of the character and the places I will have to go for her. Is fear usually part of the equation beforehand? Yeah, but then I think I'm crazy enough to ignore it or something. I always wonder why I'm not more you know, afraid before I work. Maybe I try not to believe in fear. Try to concentrate more on the moment and being present and just going forth with whatever I decide to do. And once I've decided it, to just go. But here, it's really the first time I I have to play a character or go to be someone who's a horrible person who I actually would hate. Usually you're playing people you wouldn't hate, which uh, I assume was the case for your character in Bergman Island. And I wanted to begin here because it's a film I really enjoyed. It's now available for people to see in theaters or on demand. But before all that, where were you at in your life going into shooting? Before Bergman Island, I was 
even more lost than I'm now because it was not only due to the process of work, but it was also in my private life because I came back from doing um, press for Phantom Thread. And that movie had been nominated for the Oscars, so it was a real whole campaign. As you can imagine, that was all new to me. And it, in, in some ways, even traumatizing just because, not because anything of what happened was, was bad, it's just that I wasn't prepared and I came from my little fantasy world I was always super dreamy uh, as a person and then you know and, and if there's anything you know not dreamy it's maybe the the press world and it's crazy and it's fast and it's loud and it's quick and it's so this is where I was before Berkman Island I, I didn't know who I was I didn't know what actress I am now you know now that people referred to me by this movie and you know also having two children and not being with a dad I was I felt very lost in it I felt like I had done maybe many things wrong, you know, maybe I, I should be like people who stay together and have children and build houses and save money to when they're old. Or maybe I should have been someone who should have started a career much earlier and who then was famous and would, would have known how to handle the press tour. Or maybe I should have been more cold and, and someone who can protect himself better and, you know, like not even letting it so close. I was very, very lost. And then suddenly I got the email by um, Mia with the script of Berkman Island. And in one way, it felt almost like a une bouée in French, like a safe, life safe. You know, these round, these rings, you can throw someone in the water. A life raft. <laughs> yeah. But everything then connected to the movie became super chaotic. The moment they asked me to join the movie was maybe three weeks before shooting. So when I got the script, I knew... I'm in trouble in a way because I knew I have to do this and it's like a life raft but also it would mean again being the bad not bad mother but you know the one who goes and does his work again and you know plans her holidays with her kids and everything goes as planned you know like it seemed like in my life nothing ever goes as planned and what's interesting is that the movie made me embrace the fact that you will never plan anything and never anything will happen according to plan, ever. The movie centers on a filmmaker couple. It's you and actor Tim Roth. You're visiting this Swedish island of Faro where the director Ingmar Bergman once lived. Early on in the film, there is this conversation about how a woman filmmaker and a mother can coexist. It's a conversation that's had on screen, and yet it seemed to be playing out off screen in your life. That's exactly what is so crazy about the movies that so many things that are pointed out in the film or that are maybe the, the quest of the character seem to be happening in my own life at the same time. The solution I found was I had to take my kids to the island, but also <laughs> the father of the children who I'm not with anymore, you know. So I ended up living in this house with my ex and the two children. And it was this kind of beautiful chaos you get when you have to go along with things and, and embrace life as it happens, not as you plan it. And it did turn out as one of the most beautiful vacation holiday experiences for my kids. But of course, I was still always in this inner dialogue with myself. Am I doing the right thing? Also, being the character who has the same questions. And again, the solution for the character is to let go and embrace her own way of doing things, her own way of writing, her own way of finding her story. I think the same happened to me, that I let go of, of, of all this, the fear I had and the ideas around what, what kind of actress 
am I now? I'm not the one I was before. That's why I love the movie. Of course, I, I love the script. And, and working with me, I was wonderful. But to say what I loved about the movie now is afterwards when I talk to people, I realize myself how deep the movie is, you know. But I'm curious, when the character of Chris begins to reflect parts of your own life, whether it's marriage, motherhood, career, at a certain point, is it hard to know where Chris, the character, begins and Vicky, the very real person, ends? Maybe I'm crazy and I, I didn't get it, but what I found to be true in my life is when I let go, and I let go of the fear of the character impacting Vicky or Vicky impacting the character, what happens is not only both worlds can flow into each other and can influence one another, but again, it's easier to divide. And as they flow, it's easier to divide because there's no, not so much tension anymore, not so much... I need to make this work. It has to be like this. It cannot be like... No, I just I just stopped worrying about it happening. I just let it happen. I always feel like I grow with every movie I do. And this one in particular, because it happened over two years of my life that were very important two years of my life. For one, I, one year I had to go and I didn't have a husband yet because we didn't know who would play the husband and they decided to still shoot without the other actor, so I spent one year wandering around the island on my own. So that was quite therapeutic, I think, to walk alone. And having another year where I then had to meet someone and auseinandersetzung to, um, I love this, it's a German word, it means auseinandersetzung, which means if you take things apart and put them again, but it means two people talking. <laughs> As if when you when you talk with someone and you have a real something, you know, like a discussion or something you have to talk about, it's an auseinandersetzung. It's putting things apart and putting them back together. <laughs> That's essentially the premise of this podcast. <laughs> There's another word that I know you love. I'm not going to butcher the pronunciation, but I think you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Sehnsucht. And what does that mean? Sehnsucht is a beautiful word to describe some sort of melancholy, but it's not necessarily negative. So it's a word that describes the feeling you have for something you feel like you've known before and you miss it maybe, or something you have never known but you have a, a longing for it, or something is pulling you to something you know is out there and you might want to have or you might want to go to. That yearning for something unknown, that sounds like what you must have felt back after high school when you go to South Africa and you're volunteering as a teacher for children with AIDS. And I believe it's there in Mozambique that you have this epiphany about something that is still unknown, but you were feeling something that, that was incalculable or intangible in that moment. What was this? Actually, I was looking at a mountain, and it wasn't even a famous mountain, a huge mountain, an incredible something mountain. It was really just a mountain. It could have been a hill. Okay, this is a completely mediocre mountain. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. But there was an energy emanating from nature, right? Like coming off. There was energy coming off the mountain, obviously, like from anything. And I was standing in front of the mountain, and I was so moved by this mountain. <laughs> 
and I could feel it in my whole body and I, and I had like goosebumps and you know I was 21 and I was like so moved by life and the force of nature and I could feel some sort of love energy in me and in the world and I don't know what it was because at that point I wasn't sure I, I, I was even thinking becoming a lawyer so at that point suddenly I have this epiphany and I think oh, I know what I want to be. I want to be able to capture this feeling in the tin or in a box or something and then close it somewhere inside of me and then take it with me back to Luxembourg where people would never go to Africa to see this mountain. <laughs> and then I can open the box and I can share this feeling with people who, who might never travel to this mountain. And then I was like, oh, but that's like kind of like acting. <laughs> it's exactly like acting. But it's funny, I, get, I got it from a mountain. I mean, other people read books or watch movies. You know, people get so concerned about how they find something, what changes their trajectory. And yet it seems to me, and I've done 250 plus episodes of this show, things that change your course, you know, they find you. That's true. You know what it makes me think of? There's When we were doing this press in LA, we had a... a I think it was a Q&A for the Actors Guild or like, I don't know, but it, it, it were actors in the room. And one young actor came and he asked a question. He said, yes, um, you would like to know if I can remember anything I did that makes me think why Phantom Thread happened. Like he wanted to know exactly this, you know, what, what happened in your life that you had this life-changing thing. And I said, I have no answer for you, but th thank you for the question because it made me think. And I went back to think about it, and I was like, well, there's nothing I can think of because nothing I did. I didn't go somewhere. I didn't, you know, definitely didn't consciously think I was going to work with these people ever, or even that they know who I am, you know. Um, but then because of the question, I realized it's true. There's one thing I remember, and it happened quite close to when I got the email for the, for the audition. And it was, again, and it brings us back to Berkman Island, it was the first time in my life that I let go. And I was, and, and what I did in my life, and it has nothing to do with movies maybe, but I let go of this dictatorship I had put on myself to be this perfect person, you know, the good girl, you know, because I had two children quite early, and, and early on I tried to just be someone I was not, but I was just doing it because I thought this is being good, you know, if you're good, you stay with the person you have children with. You have to stay with this person because that's how you prove that you are a good person, which is bullshit. You know, I was, I wasn't being me and I was, I wasn't honest. And I decided to be honest and talk about it and end this relationship. There was like this moment where I was letting go of things that had been holding me down in a place where I wasn't me, but where I was trying to be something I thought would be good to be. Before you let go of this preconceived notion of marriage or motherhood, it seemed like you were also having trouble letting go of the experience of Phantom Thread and the strange, surreal media circuit that followed. I bring it up because you've mentioned the film a couple times now, but after its release in 2017, you retreated back to Berlin and said yes to a few independent features, and it wasn't until a meal with director Paul Thomas Anderson over ramen, that you began to reimagine your future. What happened? This was the first time I went back to L.A. because I thought, you know, I think I should go back to this place. I've only been once and it was so weird. And I went back and, and 
also because I knew I, I would like to see Paul again. I met Paul and we, where I remember the ramen is because it was really the smallest little restaurant, you know, it was just some restaurant. It was not the cool place to be. And in the simpleness of this restaurant and in the simpleness of our meeting, he just suddenly said, I think we did a good movie. And both, we finally we laughed about it and we, it felt like letting go and releasing and accepting at the same time. Why was it so hard for you both to admit that? Because if you have seen the movie, it's beautiful also, and it's funny also, but it's also talking of <laughs> some poisonous part of human relationship in every sense. It's so hard to be together as human beings. And on the other hand, we're so addicted to it, of course, and we need it, and, and we want it, and, and it's beautiful, but it's also devastating <laughs> and hurtful. And I think all of the people who did that movie all got hurt somehow. <laughs> Like, it feels like we did this movie and we came home with this burn mark, you know? Like, you let down your guard. And whenever you let down your guard, magic happens. But also, you can get bruised. But you seem to have this spirit about you. You said, when I was 26, I got pregnant. I decided to have the baby because I accept everything in life as an adventure. I accept life. I couldn't see why you would not accept it. I was naive. Yeah. I think it brings us back to what you said in the beginning, you know, I, I lovingly call my parents hippies. I don't even know if, if you would call them this, but it was definitely chaotic um, household. If you grow up like this and, and you walk out your house in the morning and you think, oh, my life is not like anything I see around, you know, it's not like things are put into place and it feels like someone is taking care and, and, and putting up a structure, family structure, which you then can fit into and which is also holding you, you have to embrace the adventure and you have to embrace that something else might be taking care of you or that something else might be happening outside, out there and that somehow all these things are maybe supposed to be like this because otherwise you you go out and you cry because you go, why why are my parents not behaving like they should? Why why is my house not the way my neighbor's house is? Why why is everything in my life so different and so crazy and loud and so I think that's what I did as a child. I I turned to trees as I often say, you know, I I was I was literally talking to trees because I I loved them but also because I needed to find something out there that was also holding me out of family, you know? It was easier to talk to trees than people. Yeah, talking to you is, is, is okay. You count as a tree. I accept you as a tree. <laughs> you know, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me on this show. <laughs> talking to you is like talking to a tree. I knew it. I knew if I did this show long enough, someone would finally say it to me. <laughs> you have the right haircut. You mean the haircut that has not taken a haircut in a while? Yeah, long hair. <laughs> You have the haircut of someone who doesn't get a haircut. <laughs> yeah, like a tree. Where are you? Los Angeles. Huh. I'm in Tucson. Arizona. Yeah. For the film. Yeah. You know what I did two days ago? So I had a day of shooting training and I couldn't believe that I was standing where I was standing doing what I was doing. And then when we left the stand, I took it even further and I, you know, as it's out of my sense of adventure, as you say, and maybe just because I'm curious and for the character also. 
I said, oh, can we stop here? And there was like a garage sale. Because I wanted to see people who live there around this shooting stand. And we stopped. And I didn't realize that I still had my gun on my holster, like around my, my hips. And I get out the car and the, and the guy who comes to me has a gun too. Because that's what people have here, right? Hanging here on, on the side in a holster. He's like, hey, cool. Hey, girl. You know, you're like, you're like all, um, I don't know, because I had many weapons on me. There was also some sort of baton and I don't know what, which he thought was really cool. And I went like, yeah, you know. <laughs> and, then I, and I looked around and there was really nothing to buy. I mean, there were like things to do French fries, you know, or I don't know what, what they were selling. And it was all new and I was looking for old stuff. And, and then I saw this flag, which I bought. And I still can't believe I, I bought it. And I bought this horrible white supremacist flag and I bought it like someone who's buying it if you know what I mean like I just bought it and the guy was like hey yeah cool and I was like hey yeah cool it was the weirdest strange experience I've ever had in my life I'm just imagining you in your car going to this garage sale sort of in character out of character after having bought this horrible repulsive flag I don't know why, but in my head, it just it just made me think, does doing this work ever distract you from yourself? Or does it tend to lead to places where you learn something more about yourself? It tends to lead where I learn more about myself, and it even brings me even more into myself. Because when I go out of myself so far... I realize the distance, I can feel the distance, and I can see where I'm coming from. So it makes me even more realize where I come from. Because you can measure the distance between the person who would sincerely buy that flag and the person who's buying the flag for the character. I feel how cold my feet get when I get into the cold water, but then when I'm out and I dry my feet, I feel the tingling, and I know my foot has been cold in cold water, where I usually... I'm not. But the tingling reminds me of it and then makes me feel my foot even more. That is so good. I'm going to sit with that. It's funny. When you entered Bergman Island, you were a woman lost, a mother trying to find her way, thrust into a kind of strange situation on an island with her ex-husband and two children in a film that's going in all sorts of directions. But I've been thinking about it, and I wonder if you were lost then, do you feel found now? I think I found the answer that I will never find the answer or something like this. As long as I'm an actor, I will try and exist in a place of vulnerability where I don't know really where I am. But um, I think to give you an answer, when I came to the island, I, I was alone and I didn't have this uh, co-star and I had my guitar with me and I, I sometimes I started, you know, this some years ago that I would play music, but only for my characters, you know, just to kind of give them a place to live after the movie's done, you know. So they, they leave me in, in peace and they can go somewhere and stay there, you know, almost like a cemetery in, in the song, which I write for the character. And here I had my guitar again and... I knew that somehow I, I was ready and I felt like I could play these songs maybe someday to someone, not really because I want to be 
heard as this, but because it felt like the songs wanted to be heard, maybe also. And I never dared. Like it was for years that I was really hiding it. And then on on the island, suddenly I had a crow visiting me and knocking on my window and I was like, what is this crow thing? And every morning it would knock on my window and I looked it up online and it said that crows come into your life to awaken you and to accept the other world, you know, the magical world. And is there something in you that needs to be heard or blah, blah. And I was like, oh, wow, um, it could be the music thing. <laughs> and then the next day, I, the first time in my life, I'd, I, I had my, I took all my courage and I met this music producer who I met on the film and I played him my songs and he liked them and now I still haven't, you know, I, I might record them someday, but it's something I'll definitely do. But now, whenever I go somewhere, I take my guitar and I play my music. And I think that's the best way to say it. You know, I, maybe I'm just still person, uh, still the same person as before. And I wouldn't say I know more or I'm, you know, less lost. But in the being lost, I am myself now, you know. And I, I play music when I want to. And I play it to people. And I'm not afraid of being who I am and showing people who I am, even if it's maybe not perfect or whatever that is, you know. But... um so that's, I think, the, the music is the best way to answer the, your question. If music is the best way to answer my question, then perhaps you would want to play something? Now? Yeah, why not? Are you serious? I'm really serious. I would do it. i see if I can think of a song. But I, I, I probably can, yeah? You crack open the heart you're letting all of this light And then you forget and you slip away Out of life and out of sound Out of sight And into another round Of loneliness Cause here I am Out in the open sea Swimming boldly with broken memories What if it killed you? What if I do? Winning is losing What if that's true? You only find peace one lover's hand well that bird never quite landed here with me out in the open sea I was swimming with bones broken God of the ocean, he painted it all black And my father once told me There's no coming back From life or from love Or from all of this noise All powerful potions Made so we go to sleep 
deep under the open sea where we fly loosely with all of these memories what if I told you you were always my man all of those years of water and sand you I was holding on so tightly Like a secret song While you were living your life I was living alone Out here Out in the open sea I did my best I loved it So this is from this movie Old I played this, you know, woman who we are all kind of, you know, trying to fit in and just be this mother and, you know, thinking of what else could I do in my life to have a better life. And like we're all running all the time trying to optimize our lives where we already have everything. And this is kind of what the song is about, <laughs> for me at least. I really liked it. And uh, if it's true that we're always running then I just want to say thank you for sitting down with me. <laughs> Vicky Creeps, thank you very much. That's a good ending. Thank you. That was actor Vicky Creeps. You can see her in the new film from director Mia Hansen-Love. It's called Bergman Island. And it's available on streaming and VOD. Next up, we sit with an actor whose work is always so deeply moving and vulnerable. She's in a new series from Showtime called Yellow Jackets. It's a story of a team of talented high school girls soccer players who survive a plane crash deep in the remote northern wilderness. The show chronicles their descent from a thriving team to savage clans, while also tracking the lives they've attempted to piece back together 25 years later. Starring Linsky and the always excellent Juliette Lewis, Yellow Jackets premieres tonight, November 14th, at 10 9 Central on Showtime. After the break, our talk with Melanie Linsky. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? by using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. 
If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. Melanie Linsky. Hi, Sam. How are you feeling? I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you back. Now, I looked this up before you got here. In the summer of 2016, we sat in your living room and did a podcast together. I think it was episode 21. I was also 21 and you were 39. It's been five years. What have I missed? What has happened? I had a baby who's almost three. She's really cute. How did it change you having a kid? Oh my God. I'm so close to my siblings and I feel so maternal towards them. And I didn't think there was any other love possible. People say this and it sounds like a cliche, but my heart expanded. It's crazy. How has it expanded your heart? Well, I feel it interestingly, like at work, I used to need a little more time. Like if I was going to have to be emotional, I needed a bit more quiet. Like I would always bring an iPod to set so I could be like, okay, I'm not chatting and hanging out right now. I need to cry. And now it's like right there. What would you listen to on the iPod? It was different for every movie. And I would never not, I would never pick them ahead of time. Sounds so cheesy. I would kind of get into character and then I would make a playlist and then I would be sort of cycling through that playlist and then eventually one song or two songs would stick and become the song I listened to. For that character. For that character. And now that you're a mother, you don't need the songs. I don't need the songs. It's funny. I think my emotions are just like on the surface. I'm probably just exhausted also. So... But things are very accessible. And it's not like I'm thinking about my daughter and then like tears will come. I just feel, <laughs> I feel like a live electrical 
outlet. I feel like it's really yeah. weird. Yeah. How did that translate on this new show of yours? It was good <laughs> to be able to do that because a lot was asked of me. The show, Yellow Jackets, is about a group of teenage girls in 1996 who are on their way to nationals, a soccer tournament, and their plane crashes, and they're all stranded in the wilderness. So that's half of the show is about their survival, their connections, and all that stuff. And the other half of the show is 25 years later, and it's about four of the survivors and how the trauma has impacted us, how we're trying to get on with our lives and succeeding in some ways and failing in others. So this show toggles back and forth between between the timelines. 2021 and 1996, New Jersey. Yes, yes, New Jersey. Well, wherever they crash, I guess, it's sort of undefined. But these girls go to school, I think, in a town in New Jersey. Yeah. And they're all on this very elite soccer team. Yeah. Which is not the role you play, but it's a younger version of yourself. And you play the woman 25 years removed from this exactly plane crash. Yeah. So what was your entry point here? Well, I read the script and I just felt very, very interested in how, I wish there was a better word than complicated because people say complicated all the time. There's something about this person that's very unapologetic and not in a cool way. Not like, I don't give a fuck, but she's not trying to be a nice person in a way that I really enjoyed. But she's also not a nasty person. It felt like a role that was written for a man, even though it wasn't. She, she's very repressed emotionally. She doesn't want to feel anything. She does her best to try not to feel anything. And I'm so emotional <laughs> right now in my life that it felt like a very interesting internal conflict in playing this character because there were times where I'd be off camera for somebody and tears would be pouring down my face. And when I would be on camera, I didn't want that for this character. I didn't want her to be able to have tears pouring down her face. I just felt like I was constantly trying to like push it down, push it down, um, which I think is a really good conflict for I think is what she's going through. I watched the first episode and I felt that internal tug of war that's happening. Oh, good. Okay. And I wondered how the hell someone got to that place as an actor. And, and now it's clear it was actually happening. It was actually happening. Yeah. I feel like she's much better at controlling things. And there's like a genuine toughness to her that I don't have. You seem tough to me. I seem tough. I'm resilient. That's what I was going to that, Yeah. That's a better word. But I'm not like don't fuck with me. Like, I don't... <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was in shock when you walked in here and that's the first thing you said to me was, don't fuck with me. I mean, I felt like I had to just based on last time. Right. Yeah, so... Because it went so badly last time. It went so time. badly last time and it was such a um, massive embarrassment. So I just felt like, here I am, don't fuck with me. And I like the courage that you had to come back for a second time despite how badly it went the yeah, first terrible. time. terrible, yeah. Infamous. This comment you have around unapologetic characters, it's something you were thinking about when we first sat down. Oh, really? Yeah. Why don't we take a listen? It's been easier for me to explore certain things in the last few years. I've been able to access things emotionally that used to be harder. Mm. I've, I've had an easier time being unlikable unlikable in quotation marks in in characters you had an easier time being unlikable and in the last few years yeah now i can i'm like i don't give a shit if you think <laughs> she's nice so whatever 
How'd you feel listening to that? It's funny to think I know exactly the time in my life I was seeing a very particular therapist for a long time. And she was very big on like toughening me up and getting me to like embrace anger and stuff like that. It's just funny to look back and think like that was a thing that I really was struggling with. And now it's just there's such a freedom in it. To play someone who's not always agreeable. Mm -hmm. When did the switch happen inside of you? I think while I was seeing that therapist and I started to kind of assert myself a little bit more in my personal life and I realized people were okay. (laughs) People still liked me. I could be quite assertive at work. If I didn't agree with a particular note, a piece of direction, I've always been good at arguing it. And then I guess also when I did, um, I don't feel at home in this world anymore. That character lived in that place so completely that any sort of like, oh, is this okay, really left me in that performance. I didn't realize how often I just was going along just in little ways, little ways in big ways. Yeah, and I just started to be like, actually, it doesn't really work for me. It was good. And I'm really glad now that I have a daughter that that's how I'm living my life. And she doesn't have a mother who's like, oh, okay, you know. If I'm remembering our past conversation, that agreeableness, it seems like something that harkens back to you as a kid. The quote you have, I couldn't talk to kids. I couldn't play the games they were playing. I just felt like an alien. And I was watching Yellow Jackets last night, and I was brought back to that anxiety and tension as you see these teenage girls wrestling with each other emotionally. And I was then brought back to you finding yourself as a teenager on the set of Heavenly Creatures. There is an interview from 1996 by the Irish Times. Here's what the article said. Equally scary from the outside is how Winslet describes the intensity of the relationship she developed with her co-star, Melanie Linsky. She said, Melanie is like the left side of my body. Mel and I have the exact relationship in terms of communication and love that Pauline and Juliet had from the minute we saw each other. When the film ended, Winslet says she could hardly bear to return to England because it meant leaving Linsky. You all right? Yeah, it just made me emotional to hear that. It feels like such a long time ago. It was such an intense relationship. We were so, so, so close. I didn't imagine, like, a world in which we wouldn't be that close forever. Thank you. I'm surprising myself by how emotional I'm feeling. But see, it's always, like... (laughs) On the surface right now. It seems like it brought you back to two things. That time and the time that has passed since then. Yeah, and also that relationship was so meaningful to me. It was such a huge relationship in my life. That is how we felt to each other. It's just weird because I don't know her now. I have no relationship with her. And it's like, oh, wow, we really were that for each other. It's so funny. I think it was like bigger than I could comprehend at the time because I was just so young and I'd never had therapy or anything like that. I don't think I even knew the things that I was harboring that I needed to release. Like I was kind of like, imagine being so angry at your mother. (laughs) I don't know if you had this experience. I mean, I feel like we're so protective of our parents while we're still living with them. I was, and and my siblings all were. There's this thing where you're just like, everything's fine, and then you leave the house, and you're a bit like, oh, wow. Well, part of it is that you have to keep living with them and survive. you got to survive, yeah. you got to get through it. You don't want to exacerbate the conditions any worse than they are now or then. Exactly. But wait, why did you read me that passage? 
<laughs> Did we go off track? No, because to me, what I was reminded of in Yellow Jackets is that when you're a teenager, in this case, teenage girls, the relationships mean so much. I wondered how growing up on a film set, being that teenager, not on a soccer field, but on a soundstage, and then forming this relationship with Kate at that age, the intensity of that reminded me of the show. Yes. Oh, gosh, for sure. It's funny. I never, because I have so many friends from my early life who I'm still very close with, such, such close friendships. And I always think of those girls, now women. When the film ended, Heavenly Creatures, where did you think your life was going to go after that? You know, everybody around me was being very, very cautious and just saying like, well, that was fun. You got to be in a movie. And there were so few opportunities in New Zealand. There were people who would do a movie and get a lot of acclaim and be wonderful and then not work again. I just kind of thought, oh, I need a backup plan. But my backup plan was to go to university and study film and theater. I didn't have another play. It was all I ever wanted to do. I knew that it was something that I loved to do and I knew that I could access emotion and I knew in the in the moments when it was working. But in terms of like a career, I was not thinking any further than once the movie ended. I'm wondering, now that you've made all these films and shows and you're you're at this point in your career, it is a strange time to be making film and television in the world after the last 18 months we've had, not to mention the ongoing union problems and a whole bunch more. How are you thinking about acting right now? The moments where you're actually acting, it's something that I always will love and love to do. Making a show, going to work, you know, like you just see with all the union stuff, there's so many changes that need to be made. I feel like the contract that just, you know, they said, oh, we've made all these changes. It's just nothing concrete. It's nothing real. I think now is the time that they need to truly make changes. It's absolutely crazy. You've been more vocal than than most actors I've seen about this. God, I feel like I wrote one tweet. I just keep thinking, like, I'm just so tired all the time. I just keep being like, oh, I need to post another thing. And then it feels kind of performative, even though it's not. I mean it and I feel it and I want to show solidarity. Why do you feel it's performative? I'm just worried that it looks like, oh, here's this actor going to Instagram and being like, I don't like it, guys, you know. <laughs> and then people have this idea that all actors, like people who I know who've done this, people in the comments are like, well, why don't you use your millions of dollars to pay people? People have this idea that all actors have millions of dollars, which is so insane. It's just weird to me how far people will go to protect corporations. People get angry at actors for pointing out bad working conditions and then they're like, you're one of the Hollywood elite. But what you're doing when you have that argument is you're saying like Netflix shouldn't have to pay or Warner Brothers shouldn't have to pay or whoever is paying the salaries of these people. Why are you so invested in like a corporation not having to pay more money? And you're asking this one individual who's done a post saying like the people I work with should be paid more. You're saying, why don't you pay them? People just have this anger. And a misunderstanding of how much actors get paid. Yeah, like middle class actors. Is that what you are? I would think so, yeah. I mean, I feel very lucky that I've been able to make a living, but it's not like millions of dollars or a million of dollars. You know what I mean? Like, I feel very grateful, especially globally, when you look at how people live in the world, there's nothing I can complain about. I just think people have this idea that everyone has endless amounts of money if you've ever seen them on screen. And you, Melanie, feel like 
you're in this kind of unwinnable situation where you feel passionately about the unfair working conditions, but to express that passion, you're worried about a kind of backlash to it. I mean, kind of. I also just don't want it to just seem like putting something on Instagram that just feels a bit like, here's how I'm standing up for it. But then it's silly because like in my work, I do stand up for the crew. I do stand up for people's hours. I do things. I feel like 50% of my job should be trying to make the crew's day easier. There shouldn't be any self-indulgent takes. You should try to get it as quickly as possible. You should show up on time. You should know your lines, you know. For those listening who don't work in film or television, can you explain the conditions that you find to be untenable in the workplace? Sometimes the day will be like 14 hours long, which I think is too long of a day to be working. And people say frontline workers work that long. I I understand that there are people who do incredibly difficult jobs and work insanely difficult hours. I do think we should be able to have a conversation about how people in the film and television industry are treated. I think people think it's like a glamorous job. There's a lot of manual labor for a lot of people, lifting, pulling, climbing on things. And then People in hair and makeup, people in wardrobe, PAs, there are whole groups of people who have to be there two hours before that day even begins and an hour afterwards to wrap out. And then not to mention if you're leaving a location, the camera trucks have to wrap out. That takes time. People are exhausted. People have to drive themselves to and from work long distances. It's dangerous and people get really burnt out. And like on the last job I was doing, one of the PAs, I knew he and his wife had been trying to get pregnant. She was pregnant. And he was like, oh, I'm just hoping I get to go to the first ultrasound. And I was like, just go to the first ultrasound. Like, just say I need that day. And he's just like, oh, I just don't feel like I can do that. And I just felt like it's such a huge event in this person's life that he's been waiting for for such a long time. And you should just be able to be like, this is really important. And people should have the humanity to say, like, of course, people are treated like their families don't matter. People are treated like their lives don't matter a lot of the time, like they're expendable. Sorry, I feel like I started ranting a little bit, but... It's not ranting, because I don't think enough people are actually talking about it on a microphone. It's one thing to post, but for people to actually hear the stories, the people that don't work in film and television, which is most people, they hear about this peripherally. But growing up as an actor, I wonder how you were taught in terms of the us and them between those on screen and and those behind the scenes. Those conditions that you came up in, do you feel they're different now? Do you feel there's more of a conversation about how actors interact with crew, the dividing lines between above the line, below the line? Yeah, I mean, I've never had a dividing line. Like, a lot of the people who I've become closest with on productions have been crew people who I've made friends with. Also on Heavenly Creatures, everybody would get together at the end of the day and watch the dailies, like every single member of the crew So it felt like everyone was as important as each other. But you do see mostly producers and people like that treating people pretty badly sometimes. There is a sense from some people, I haven't seen it from very many actors. I've seen it from a few actors, but not many. I just don't understand people making a distinction like, oh, I'm in a position of power in this exchange. It's Mm -hmm. just so weird. Do you have hope that these conditions will improve? Yes, but I do think there needs to be something like legally binding. People need to be able to retire from the film industry with enough money to live on. I just think it's time. Like, I think if they need to strike, they need to strike. I think that story you told helps a lot about a prospective father who's saying, I need to go do this. 
Yeah, but he doesn't feel like he can say, I, I need to. How many other jobs in the world would you not be able to say, oh, hey, can I have like two hours on Monday? Right. And yet in your own life, now that you're a mother, how have you balanced your career in all of this? Well, when I got pregnant, I was so excited to be pregnant and so paranoid. I didn't work for my entire pregnancy. I did one episode of Joe Swanberg's show, Easy. I did one day on Easy, and that was it for my entire pregnancy. And then I didn't work for like seven months afterwards, which how lucky am I to be able to not work for 18 months? And then the next thing I did was Mrs. America, and it was very, very hard with an infant. And so after Mrs. America, I've just been very careful, like asked a lot of questions of people. <laughs> What's going to be there for me? How are you going to help me? And then, of course, there was like COVID and we didn't do anything for a year. What were you thinking about in that time in the pandemic? I mean, I felt so worried for people. I felt so worried for people losing their jobs, like if people were OK. I started donating to a lot of food banks and charities to help, you know, no kid hungry and stuff like that. I felt very worried for the world personally. Like, I feel very privileged to be able to say this, but it was a nice time for my family. But then it was an emotional time. I got pregnant again, and then I lost the pregnancy, and it was, like, shitty. And it was a really hard recovery. So at first it was this kind of, like, dreamy bubble we were in, and I'm like, another baby, and then I had to go through. It's also, it's not fun going to the doctor in the middle of a pandemic, and especially when you're going to, like, two surgeries, and I had to, like, there was a lot of horrible stuff that happened after I lost the pregnancy. So it ended up being, like, miserable. <laughs> a wonderful time to a miserable time, and then it's gone on for so long, it's circled back into a wonderful time again. Obviously, I didn't know. No, I haven't, like, spoken about it. I haven't said anything. You know, I've done to my friends. But I just think it's a good thing for people. I feel like people don't talk about it enough, and it's very common. How did you get through that? I don't know if I have, honestly. I don't know if I have. I think I'm holding on to it. I'm trying to get through it, but I don't think my body has finished grieving it. Like, I think your body kind of hangs on to things. Like, emotionally, I'm like, oh, okay, enough time has passed, and I should be done with it, but I'm just not. It's like really, really hanging around. I think because I got pregnant while I was still breastfeeding and hormonally, it just my body was like, ooh, ooh, ooh. And I instantly gained a lot of weight that is just still on my body. Like it's pregnancy weight, even though it's been a year. And that is a strange manifestation that I've just had to try to make peace with. I'm just trying to be kind about it now and just be like, okay, you're going through something I'm trying to force to talking to my body <laughs> like a weirdo but you know I'm trying to force you to be okay with something that you're not okay with like I think my body was really in shock and I think it was really emotional I was like oh god how is this going to be the next time someone close to me is pregnant and instantly my sister-in-law got pregnant and my brother's wife got pregnant and I just felt joy for them I felt absolute joy for them and that I was really relieved. I was like, okay, good. I'm glad I don't have like resentment or like, oh, I don't have my baby. You know, it just, by the way, I did not think I would be coming here and talking about this. It's taking a turn. Um, I hope you're okay with it. I, I'm okay with it. Okay, good. I'm okay with anything you're okay with. Yeah, I'm okay with it. Yeah. But part of the weird thing in like recovering from something like that is just people are starting to speak about it more, but it's just not really talked about and I don't think people know what's appropriate in terms of their own emotional reaction to it. Why isn't it talked about? I think that there's so much 
guilt and mom shaming. And when you're pregnant, everybody has an opinion about what you should be doing. You know, the first thing my doctor said to me was, this is not your fault. There's nothing that you did. And there's still like a weird little voice in your head that's like, well, what if it is something I did? And I think people have that. And I just think also it's very personal and it's strange to talk about. I think people don't know how to respond to it. People don't know what's an appropriate thing to say in response to that kind of loss. And so they either minimize it or they ignore it. Or I just think the more people talk about it, the easier it's going to be for people in the future who go through it. Well, I'm grateful you're talking about it. And I hope you don't feel like I've ignored it or, or, or I don't. Or no, 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 no. You approach everything with like a really um, empathetic curiosity that I think is really beautiful. Was that true five years ago? Yeah. Yeah. It was really impressive. It's a very fine line to walk where you're sort of like pushing people to open up more, but you're not pushy and you don't feel like someone's being invasive. That's tough. You're really amazing at that. I probably do it differently now than I did then. You seem more relaxed now, I think. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then, like, think about what chaos your life was in at that time. I mean, you were, like, about to transition to a new place, and, like, you were very— <laughs> You did see—you're a very, like, calm person, but you did seem like you were in the middle of something, a major life event. I was in the middle of moving. I was 21. Yes. We had never met before. Yeah. We were doing it in your living room. I would have gone somewhere. I didn't easier. have anywhere to take you. <laughs> it's, true, it's true. Yeah. I think there's like an ease about you now. Thank God. <laughs> Before we go. Yeah. Let's play a clip from the end of that conversation. Okay. From 2016. If you could tell yourself at 16 something now, what would it be? I think it would be you're fine. Just you're fine. You're fine. Like, stop it. Stop looking for the person who's going to prove to you that you're wonderful or trying to make your body look a particular way. And, you know, I had this idea, like, if I ever weigh this much, then I'm going to be happy. Really? I, yeah, I had a lot of eating issues, a lot of issues around relationships and trying to find my happiness from external things. I weirdly, I never had a thing with my work where I was like, if I get to this level of success, I'll right. be, because my work has always been too personal to me, I think. I've always needed it for different reasons. But yeah, I just, I wish I had not wasted so much time trying to get other people to make me happy. Oh, my voice. <laughs> it's, just, it's hard to listen to yourself. So that was you at 39 giving advice to your 16-year-old self. Now you're 44. Mm -hmm. You have a kid. Yeah. If we do this again in five years, mm -hmm. what do you want to put on record in this time capsule now? Are we going to do this again in five years? Why not? <laughs> yeah. Let's just keep doing it every five years until I die. And then you can interview, after my death, you can interview my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> if you want. Keep going because you're going to live a lot longer than me. Why would you say that? Because you're so much younger than me. Doesn't it just make logical sense? I'm not that much younger. You're almost 20 years younger than me. That's very, that's a lot. It's not that much time. I think it's a lot of time. Okay, it's a lot of time. That is the thing I've been thinking about now that I have a child is I'm just like, oh my God, time. Like I used to just be like, eh, all right. People would say, oh, and there's technology where now you can live to 100. And I would be like, who would want to? 
but I just, this child is such a little miracle. I want to see every moment of her life if I can. The thing I would want to remember from this time is I feel like there's going to be a point where my daughter is not as snuggly (laughs) and loving as she is. (laughs) She comes up to me so many times a day and says, I love you so, 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 so much. And hugs me and she goes, is this too tight? And it's really cute. And that's the thing I keep telling myself, like, you need to record it so you can watch it in the future when she's like, oh, get out of here, close the door, you know, because there will be a time where she's sick of me. But right now it's like a lot of love. Maybe in five years when we do this again, she'll be sick of you. Maybe. (laughs) She might be. And I'll be like, oh, God, wasn't that great? That's how I feel about this talk. (laughs) Oh, me too. Melanie Linsky, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. So great. that's our show. Special thanks this week to Madeline Meritz, Heidi Lopata, Brett Levine, the teams at IFC and Showtime, and of course, Melanie Linsky and Vicky Creeps. You can watch Melanie and Yellow Jackets on Showtime every Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Bergman Island, starring Vicky Creeps, is available now on streaming and VOD. You can find links to all this and more in our show notes at talkeasypod.com. There, you'll also find a back catalog of over 200 episodes. If you enjoyed today, I'd recommend some conversations with folks like Julia Lewis, Nick Offerman, Julie Delpy, Numi Rapace, Titus Burgess, Laura Dern, Matthew McConaughey, Porna Jagannathan, Steven Soderbergh, and Holland Taylor. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to support the show by purchasing one of our mugs or our vinyl record with Fran Leibowitz, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com shop. Of course, the show would not be possible without our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our lead editor is Andre Lynn. Our managing editor is Clarice Guevara. Today's talks were edited by Caitlin Dryden and Clarice Guevara, mixed by Ben Tolliday, illustrations by Krisha Shenoy, music by Dylan Peck, video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Abrazak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, Shiloh Fagan, Nikki Spina, Callie Syringas, and of course, the team at Pushkin Industries. I'd also like to give a special thanks to Tim Moore, our engineer out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. The show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with Buffy St. Marie. Until then, stay safe and so long.
The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.